Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Welcome back. (laughs) Uh, Just joking. It's Aaron here, back for episode number seven. Number seven, getting down the road some here. This episode is brought to you, as always, by 5MinuteBibleStudy.com, where you can get all your five minutes worth of Bible study every day. If you go to the website this week, my ad of the day is going to be the How to Study the Bible series. This is a new series that I'm just kickstarting. I've done all the recordings for it. It is a video series walking you through 13 lessons that will teach you how to study the Bible effectively and understand the meaning of passage that maybe that you don't understand now if you've always wanted to do that. This Bible study series is for you. I got the trailer up live on the YouTube page, but the next 12 episodes, 12 lessons are forthcoming. I've got to edit them and I'll release them. I think I'm going to start releasing them later this week. So if you want to catch episode two, where we actually get into some meat, then you can hop on to the new How to Stay the Bible series. Today's episode is going to include several segments as back to kind of a normal routine. Last week, we or last episode, we broke routine, but we're going to have our normal routine here, Bible story, main dish, and then finishing up with a foot and mouth syndrome. So the Bible story this week, I'm going to cover Jonathan and his armor bearer and how they routed 20 Philistines and really the whole army of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. Really cool story. Jonathan really is one of just the most pure Bible characters in all the Bible. Just a really amazing individual to just study and reflect and be like. So I'm going to tell the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Uh, Then the main dish is going to be about key phrases for understanding prophecy. We're going to go through, I haven't even counted them up, but there are several key phrases that if you will learn and understand what these mean when you come across them, then it will just open up Bible study of prophecy, books of prophecy, or wherever prophecy pops up in a book of the Bible. And then finally, I'm going to end on a segment, Foot and Mouth, where I talk about how I called newborn babies ugly. This wasn't too long ago in a sermon at Chapel Grove Church of Christ, and uh, there's some backstory. I'll just tell you that at the end. We'll wait till we get there. Without further delay, let's get to Bible stories. And that donkey got up not too far away from that angel of the Lord. Send me a man to fight with me. Esau, let me tell you a story that will prove to you that I can defeat that giant. And he said, no, I can't do that. You're my master's wife. Jonathan, his armor bearer, and the routing of the Philistines. Here we go. Jonathan, by way of introduction, is the son and heir of the throne of King Saul and the nation of Israel. This is when the first king was established. Saul was the first king, if you're not super familiar with your Old Testament history. He wasn't a great king, but Jonathan was a great son, a better son than Saul was a king. And he was also quite the soldier, apparently, from our first insight into his battle skills in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. What's going on is that the Philistines, you'll remember the Philistines and the big ugly giant. Well, that's after this story in the Bible where David kills Goliath, my favorite story in all the Bible. But before that, we're still dealing with the Philistines, arch enemy of the nation of Israel, and Israel is out fighting them. There's Philistine raiders all over the place, and the Israelites are kind of tucking tail. 
Um, they're kind of running from the Philistines. They're in trouble. And they're, they're, it's kind of described in this story in 1 Samuel 13 and 14 as if there's this kind of a divide separating the Israelites, or at least the main camp of the Israelites, which is, consists of Saul and 600 men, from the Philistine camp, kind of on the other side of this hill is kind of what I get from this story. Well, anyways, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they're just hanging out, eating some grub maybe, and at this time, Israel... You know the Israelites. I'll put it that way. They didn't have any swords or spears or anything, and that's what makes this story so cool. Like there are no weapons in the whole army of Israel, so there is like no way they're going to beat the Philistines by their own strength alone. Like no way. And the story tells us in First Samuel thirteen that the Philistines had basically I don't know that they confiscated all the weaponry, but they at least confiscated all the supplies or the tools that w- would be in the land to sharpen your instruments. So I guess maybe Israel had swords and they just they couldn't sharpen them, so they were as dull as could be. Like you could hit somebody with it, but they would just bounce off of them. And that's kind of what set the scene for this little story here. So the only people with actual weapons in the whole camp of Israel are Saul and Jonathan. And throughout the history of Saul, he's not really known for being a brave man. And so it takes Jonathan to trust God in this story. So he's talking to his armor bearer, and he says this, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Jonathan said to his young man, his armor bearer, come let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. That's the name for non-Israelites, Philistines in this case. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. I don't normally stop hearing these stories to make a point, but this is just a great one-liner. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Same thing was said basically to Gideon, or in the story of Gideon, and also in 2 Chronicles 14, 11, this concept that God, uh, he is with the few. Very often his people are the few. Well, anyways, the armor bearer says to him, do the all that's in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. And Jonathan said, very well. Ah, yeah, he's excited. Let us cross over to these men, and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. He did not tell his daddy. He did not tell his daddy that he was going to approach the enemy like this. And can you imagine if he had told his daddy how worried his daddy would have been? Because his dad did not trust like Jonathan did. But Jonathan, he trusts in God, man. And when you trust in God, especially in the age of the miraculous and the age of special revelation, uh, you could do just about anything that God allowed you to do with faith in God. And it says, then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan, the men of the Philistine garrison, they called up to him, and guess what they said? Come up to us, and we'll show you something. (laughs) And Jonathan said, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his knees, and his armor bearer with him, they fell before Jonathan, the Bible says. He and his armor bearer killed them, and it said the first slaughter that Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men and about a half acre of land. But as Saul and the army of Israel on the other side of that hill or mountain or whatever it was, they started hearing swords clashing, and they started seeing Philistines run all different directions. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who has left the camp? Who has gone over to the camp of the Philistines? And they start doing a head count. And the only people that cannot be accounted for are Jonathan and his armor bearer. And he 
gets it. Da-ding! It's my son, and I can imagine he is super worried, so he runs up the hill, and he looks over to see, is Jonathan safe? But instead of seeing Jonathan slaughtered, he sees the whole camp of the Philistines fighting each other. And they're in such a state of confusion because of the confusion that God had caused on them through using Jonathan and just him and his armor bearer to rout the whole army. It's a lot like the story of Gideon. The people started killing each other. And that day, the Philistines defeated themselves. It says in verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. All because Jonathan and his armor-bearer trusted more in God than his daddy and the rest of the Israelite army. This is a great example. Again, the Lord, he saves by many or by few. It don't matter to God because God is stronger than anyone. This episode is also brought to you by Fireproof Pants. Wouldn't it be nice if you could tell lies without worrying about your pants catching fire all the time? There's a new startup company called Fireproof Pants that was thinking the same thing. So they developed new fireproof technology combined with polyester to fix the problem. Now you can tell your wife, no, that dress doesn't make you look fat. And stay at a nice room temperature from the waist down. And check out the special features. They're stylish, breathable. They withstand up to 350 degrees and they do not char. Get a pair while supplies last and keep your hiney safe at fireproofpants.com. Exceptions may apply. These pants will not endure the fires of hell. Okay, let's get it on. We're ready for the main dish here. Today we're talking about prophecy. And, you know, I thought about not you know, getting to prophecy this early on in the podcast, but we're really not going in a progressive fashion of any kind. We even had that one episode, episode three, on can Christians drink alcohol? Blah, sorry. Um, and that really didn't have to do with how to study the Bible, but I try to make all the episodes about how to study the Bible some aspect of that overarching topic. Well, prophecy, understanding prophecy is a big beast, and tackling it in one episode is not going to be possible, obviously. There's pretty much nothing, no part of Bible study can we tackle it in one episode. But I think this is a good little introduction to it, so when we're talking about books of prophecy, if you look in your table of contents on your Bible, you're going to notice a new section. Some, well, sometimes the table of contents will break this down for you and show you that a new section starts when you get to the book of the book of Isaiah, and that's the first book of prophecy in our English Bible arrangement. That goes all the way through the end of the Old Testament, Malachi being the last one. Of course, you have your 12 minor prophets that starts with the book of Hosea, goes through Malachi, and, and Isaiah all the way through Daniel are known as the major prophets simply because their books are larger in volume. That's all it is. But you'll also come across prophecy, like little little bitty prophecies, within other books of the Bible. I think it's the last chapter of 2 Samuel, if I'm not mistaken, has an entire like prayer or song that, that David offers to God, and, and within that there is prophetic language. And one of the things that you need to understand about prophecy in general, it's not necessarily predictive in nature. And that's something that took me a long time to figure out. And when I did figure out that it wasn't necessarily predictive, but it was simply prophecy is forth-telling the Word of God. Predictive prophecy is foretelling it, telling something before it happens. So foretelling, just otherwise, the majority of prophecy, probably 80, 90% of it, is a prophet who has received word from the Lord, and he tells that forth. He basically just preaches. 
And it's not necessarily predicting future events. It might include that. It might not. He might just be simply calling people's attention back to, in the Old Testament, often the law of Moses and what they were supposed to be doing, but they weren't. There's very few books of prophecy that are not correcting the nation on some level uh, of morality. But anyways, that little tidbit is important. I uh, just a couple of other reading tips as you're reading through books of prophecy that will help you in your understanding. Just very basic tips is these books here, Isaiah all the way through Malachi. Think about these books as if you're reading the epistles in the New Testament. And maybe you didn't know what I'm about to tell you, so this will help you when reading the epistles too. The epistles were at least the Pauline epistles as we call them, the the ones written by Paul, 1 Corinthians, Thessalonians, both Corinthians, I didn't mean to single out 1 Corinthians. All those epistles by Paul, you can go back to the book of Acts, and as you're reading along, you can see where the Corinthian church was established. I think it was Acts chapter 18, if I'm not mistaken off the top of my head. You can fact check me on that. The Ephesian church is brought up in Acts chapter 19. So these letters to these churches, you can find by reading back and forth and comparing the two, kind of where Paul wrote the letter and where did that church have its beginnings? Which, which is the, what audience are we talking about? You can find out by reading the book of Acts. It's a lot the same in the books of prophecy when you read them in conjunction with the books of history. The books of history being First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So chiefly, take Samuel off of there. Not too many prophets from the major and minor prophets prophesied during the days of Samuel. Um, that I'm aware of, but if you read especially Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, you've got most of all the books of history that cover the time period when when these prophets uh, prophesied, when they wrote their books. So that should help you, give you a framework of reference. If you need to go back, and it really helps to understand what's going on in the nation whenever Micah prophesies, then do that. Go back and read the books of history, and sometimes you'll find that prophet's name popping up. Sometimes you'll find a name that matches the prophet, and it's not the same guy, but a lot of times you'll see the prophet in the books of history. So there you go. That's a little reading tip I would give to you. Otherwise, um, here's some basic things. A couple of book recommendations coming up about reading and understanding the prophets, but before you get there, things about your actual Bible— when you're reading prophecy, a lot of the editors have done things in the Bible that they've given to you to help make prophecy pop off the page at you so that you know, and I'm talking specifically when you're reading the New Testament. They have done things in their editing to help you notice whenever an Old Testament passage or prophecy is being used by Jesus or Paul or whoever. Something I've noticed is this, not every Bible does this, but a lot of them will italicize the Old Testament quotation so you can see, okay, this is italicized, that must be Old Testament. Let me look at my cross-references. Ah, it's from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, whatever. And then I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible this year, and this is the only edition that I've ever seen where instead of italicizing the text, they bold any Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. So that was interesting. But again, they're just trying to let you know if you aren't familiar and you're kind of a new reader, this is coming from the Old Testament. Also, I just mentioned use your cross-references. If you don't have a Bible that has either center column reference or references uh, in footnotes, so that whenever you come across those Old Testament quotations, it will tell you where that's coming from. If you don't have that, you are at a huge disadvantage. 
you are really at a disadvantage, I would encourage you to get a Bible that does have some type of cross-reference system. Some Bibles have better cross-reference systems than others. One that is made specifically with that aim in mind, like that is the whole reason why the Thompson Chain Reference Bible is made, to give you a plethora of references to help aid your Bible study and understanding of whatever text that you're reading at the time. Also, I would point you to the Open Bible, which I have a, a video previewing the Open Bible. I don't make money off of this. Maybe I should. It's one of the more popular videos on my YouTube page. But the Open Bible is produced by Thomas Nelson, and it's really cool because it has a lot of indexes in the back. It'll tell you units of measurement from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It'll tell you, it has a whole table in the back of the Bible of all the Messianic prophecies, or at least, not maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, I'll put it that way. And it not only gives you the Old Testament prophecy, the text spelled out, but right parallel to it, it gives you the New Testament fulfillment of that text. It's just a great table. There are a lot of other helpful tables. There's timelines of the prophets in between Matthew and Malachi, between the Testaments, that help you there. The Open Bible has a lot of really good table references for first-time readers. And honestly, I get benefit from them, and I'm not a first-time reader. A few books that I would point you to, before we get into these key phrases, I know we've talked a little while already, and we haven't gotten to the key phrases, but... This stuff is helping, or it will help you if you'll take advantage of these tools. There are four different books that I would recommend to you. Uh, three of them I have read, if not all of them, a lot of them, and then one of them I've not read, but I know it's good. The first one, highly recommend How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets by Peter Gentry. This is an excellent, excellent book. It's on my to read list again for this year. It's been a few years since I read it, but I remember reading it and thinking, wow, this just opened up so much to my understanding of the prophets, which are difficult. Every Anybody will tell you that. They're difficult to understand, especially compared to like books of history. But anyways, Peter Gentry is the author. Really good insight into how to read the prophets. I will say this is kind of for your moderate skill readers, and I don't mean like you can read at a moderate level like ABC. I'm talking like your understanding of the Bible, maybe. If you're in the moderate range, this book is for you. The next book, What the Bible Teaches About the Promised Messiah by James E. Smith. This is a little bit more basic, I would say, just in my estimation, but he goes through every Messianic prophecy. Really good. You can use it as a reference work, or you could read the whole thing. I use it as a reference work mainly. Drawing Waters from the Wells of Salvation by Doug Edwards is probably it's one of the top three books that I've ever read. And it's not just because Uncle Doug is my uncle, but it's really a good book. As he, he goes through Messianic prophecy, kingdom prophecy, and he explains, as he goes along, he explains prophecies, but he also gives you tools and, and tips uh, to help you in reading the prophecy on your own. If you'll take these things that he's saying and apply them yourself— it will help you understanding difficulties when you come across certain texts that just blow your mind. And then a final one is Exploring Mount Zion, by also by James E. Smith. This is the one I haven't read, but I do have it on my shelf. I've perused it, and James E. Smith is pretty good on this subject, really good on this subject of just helping basic introductory level, let me say that again, giving introductory level material on understanding the, the prophets and prophecies. So those are four books that I would recommend Probably the easiest one to read on that list, what the Bible teaches about the promised Messiah. But uh, all of those, you know, when you get to prophecy, it helps if you have read your Bible. And if you haven't read your Bible all the way through, 
what I'm going to go through in these key phrases, this will help you if you haven't read your Bible all the way through, but you're not going to make it very far if you haven't read your Bible all the way through. So I stress so much, read your Bible. Finish reading your Bible all the way through. For stuff like this, if you're going to understand all the Word of God, you got to read all the Word of God. That's just how it is. Well, let's get into the key phrases now. And I did count them up. There are eight key phrases, and I'm going to start with the biggest one. And by the biggest one, I don't mean like this is the most important one, but I mean this is, I have more to say about this phrase than any of the other phrases. The other ones will go pretty quickly as we're going to look at the chapter four of Micah and take the phrases from that chapter and all but number one, Joel chapter two and verse 31 is where we will take the phrase, the day of the Lord. And so we're going to read this passage. In fact, in the book of Joel, one, two, three, four, five times, as I have counted, you could double check me, but the phrase, the day of the Lord, pops up five times in the book of Joel. It's a very common phrase, very important to understanding the book. And this is a phrase that crops up a lot in the Bible, in, in prophecy. And not even just Old Testament prophecy, it pops up quite a bit in the New Testament as well. Well, in Joel chapter 2 and verse 31, in the middle of this prophecy, which seemed to be talking about the future, it says, The sun shall be darkened, or shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, I've been taking a group of just friends through a book that I, that's called The Minor Prophets by Jack Lewis. I'll also recommend that book. Now, this is a very introductory level uh, read into The Minor Prophets, but one of the things that Jack Lewis says in his book that I thought was great was his definition of what is the day of the Lord. Maybe you hear that phrase and you think that it's a reference to the final day of judgment. And that would not be incorrect. Like there are times when that phrase is used to refer to the coming day of judgment. But here in Joel chapter 2, in Amos, in the book of Amos when it's used, in Isaiah it's used, and it's not necessarily always referring to the coming final day of judgment when Jesus Christ comes back and burns up the earth with fire, Second Peter 3. So the question is, what does this refer to? If it's not all in reference to the second coming of Christ, then how do I make sense of whenever this phrase is used, and what is it referring to? Like Jack Lewis, he says, it is a day, referring to the day of the Lord. It is a day, not at the end of history, but within the framework of history when the fate of a nation is realized. But anyways, yeah, the, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment in general, but it's not necessarily referring to a singular day in history. And that's, again, what makes this difficult. So even though it does refer to sometimes, for example, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, let's read one of these in the New Testament that is in reference to the final coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2 is one of these. It says there, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord uh, so comes as a thief in the night. There it's obviously referring to the second coming of Christ. It's also used that, this way in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. And we can read that one as well real quick. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, when the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Those are obviously in reference to the second coming of Christ, but for example, in Isaiah 13, this phrase is used twice, and it's not in reference, obviously, to the second coming of Christ. The chapter opens up in Isaiah 13, verse 1, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So this is a judgment prophecy against the whole nation of Babylon. 
Jumping down to verse 6, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Jumping down to verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he's talking about the land of Babylon. And so here, the same phrase of judgment is used, but not in reference to the end-time judgment, just simply the judgment of a nation, as Jack Lewis had introduced us to the idea earlier. It's also used in reference to the judgment against Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. That's called the Day of the Lord in, in Jeremiah 46, verses 1 through 2 and verse 10. It's also used in, in talking about the judgment against Israel by the Babylonians, so not against the Babylonians, but God is going to use the Babylonians to bring about what he calls the Day of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And so when Joel says, for the day of the Lord is coming, chapter 2 of Joel in verse 1, Joel is referring to the judgment that God's sending, the judgment that's going to follow the plague of locusts that had already come on the land. And it's not necessarily referring to the final day of judgment. Now, some people say that the final day of judgment is never prophesied about in the Old Testament. I'm not so sure about that. For example, this passage right here, is it talking about the final day of judgment Well, I'm just going to be honest with you. I have not looked into this specific verse, so I would leave this to your Bible study. Probably not, is what I would say, given the context of what's going on in this book and all. But it may be, because it comes right after talking about uh, a prophecy which is fulfilled directly in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and the establishment of the church. So it's a possibility that it is. But I just want to get across the idea, when you come across this phrase, the day of the Lord, in prophecy, it's not referring to the end-time judgment necessarily, but just simply, as Jack Lewis said, it's a day, not the end of history, but within the framework of history when the fate of a nation or a people is realized. Now, one thing that it will help you is, is understanding what the day of judgment will be like. This is why it's relevant for you and me. If you go back and you look at the judgments of God on these nations— in episodes that were called the Day of the Lord, like the Judgment of Babylon, the Judgment of Israel, um, the Judgment of Egypt, then you understand how awful the Day of the Lord is going to be for people that do not fear Him and for people that do not keep His commandments. First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians 1 and verse 8, right in there, describing the second coming of Christ, is terrifying for those that do not fear God and do not keep His commandments. And I was reading the story of Sodom and Gomorrah the other day, and the day of the Lord that came upon them. And it just, as I was reading it slowly in the peace of my home early in the morning, it just really hit for the first time in a way it never had before, just how awful that sudden judgment was. That's the day of the Lord. Well, the second phrase that we want to look at is the latter days. And we're going to go to observe the next seven key phrases from the book of Micah. So if you're Riding in the car, obviously, do not turn with your Bible. But if you are not riding in the car and you're treating this like a Bible study, turn with me to Micah chapter 4, and verse 1 is where we're going to take our reading from. We're going to read the prophecy in full all the way from verse 1 to verse 8, and then we will stop and review and bring out some of the key phrases here. This is talking about the kingdom of the Messiah when he comes in the future, in reference to the days of Micah at least. And it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, 
and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall stir up, or I'm sorry, everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Verse 6. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. I hope you didn't get bored listening to that. Some people get bored listening to the Old Testament prophets or reading them. Obviously, you are probably not going to understand everything that was just said there. And and maybe you didn't understand any of it, and you're like, whoa. Okay, I'm going to need more than just a couple of key phrases here, Aaron. (laughs) Well, let me walk you through a few of these, and then I'm not going to read the text again, but you know, after the episode, go back and read the text again after you now understand some of the key phrases and see just how much it opens up to you in terms of understanding. The first phrase that I want to look at, the second phrase overall, first, the day of the Lord, now the latter days. These are often repeated phrases in books of prophecy or in just prophecies throughout the Bible. Uh, This occurs in chapter 4 and verse 1, right out of the gate. Micah says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that these things are going to happen. And a lot of people think that the latter days refer to, just like the previous phrase, refers to the end-time judgment, or like literally the, the very last 48 hours preceding the coming of the Son of Man uh, on the clouds of heaven with the angels to bring judgment and fire, right? That's what people often think. In fact, there's there have been uh, the Left Behind series, uh, other dispensational views of prophecy like that have left us with that understanding of phrases like this. But as you read prophecy and you understand how this prophecy is used in reference to uh, history— It's used in the book of Joel, chapter 2, which we just read a little bit ago. Joel said the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. Well, in Acts chapter 2, in the first century, now 2,000 years ago from us, Joel's prophecy is quoted by Peter, and he said, these things are you see happening today. But Joel said those things were going to happen in the latter days. And you're like, okay, here, hold on. We've been in the latter days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years now. There's something going on. Uh, Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. No, you don't know what you're talking about because you have restricted this phrase to mean something that it was not necessarily restricted to mean. It can refer to the last 48 hours of the world, but it never has reference to specifically the last few days of the earth. Rather, this is the idea of the last dispensation of time. If you don't know what a dispensation is, it's a large block of time, as it were, or a period of history. So, for example, we refer to the patriarchal dispensation of time to describe the entire gap of history that came before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And after that, we call that the the uh, Mosaic dispensation, or there, there are other names for it. But that's 
several thousand years from the time, or actually not several thousand, about 1,500 years from the time of Moses to the next dispensation of time or the last dispensation of time, which is the time of the Messiah, when his kingdom reigns, and the only thing that comes after that is his second coming. But the last days don't necessarily refer to the last three or four or five or six days of the earth, but just the last period of history, the time of the Messiah, the time when the climax of redemptive history comes, which we're living in today, and that should give us thankfulness for living in the climax of redemption history. Anyways, that's how the phrase is used frequently. I just gave you one example in Joel 2, fulfilled in Acts 2, but look that phrase up and see that I'm not lying to you. That will help you understanding what this phrase means when it's used several times in Scripture. It should be a tip uh, a tip off to you to think of Messianic prophecy. Ah, this is talking about when the Messiah comes. The third phrase is found in verse 1 there. Let's read it again. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. The Lord's house is the phrase. What does that mean? The Lord's house is a concept. The concept is where God dwells. The temple was the ultimate house of the Lord. It was literally a house where God's glory physically dwelt, and whenever Solomon dedicated his the smoking glory of God filled the temple and pushed everybody out of there because they couldn't bear to be in the Lord's house with his glory. Before this, though, there were places where God met man and communicated with him. For example, when Jacob slept with his head on a rock fleeing from his brother Esau, he set up the rock and called it Bethel, which means the house of God. And that was the place where God dwelt with Jacob that night to give him assurance that he would be providentially protected by God's ongoing presence with him. Um, So any place where it mentions the Lord's house, we're talking about where God dwells. And in reference to this point in history, when Micah wrote this prophecy, there was a physical temple in Jerusalem, but there's obviously going to be a time in the future that he says here in the latter days, in the time of the Messiah, when God will dwell with his people in a special way, like it's not happening right now. Because at the point in history where Micah was, there was a lot of conflict going on in Israel. He calls him out for a lot of the sinning, and it won't be long before God's presence leaves the nation and he forsakes them for their forsaking him. Well, the Lord's house, God's going to come dwell with his people again in the latter days. Let's go to the next phrase. This one pops up often in Scripture as well. This is all going to happen when, phrase number four, he says, this shall be established on the top of the mountains. The Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. What's he mean on the top of the mountains? Does this mean that we're looking for Jesus to come rest on a certain mountain somewhere and we've got to figure out where that mountain is and start waiting for him? No, I mean, not really, not today, no. Jesus did come, and he did set up his his kingdom on a mountain, like literally on a mountain. So Jerusalem was on an elevated summit, and from what I understand from reading history, when people, when Jews who didn't live in Jerusalem would come from all over the earth, they would have to ascend a kind of an um, elevation, a, they would have to summit what's called Mount Zion, where Jerusalem was built on. And I don't understand it to be a a huge mountain, but nonetheless, it was uh, up on an elevation, and it was referred to the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord in prophecy, like right here, Jerusalem, all referring to the same thing. In fact, other places in this same chapter, verse 2 says, for out of Zion the law 
shall go forth in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem was on a, a kind of a mountain type of elevation. That, that's what it's referring to. Literally, the, the latter days is when this is going to happen. God is going to come dwell with his people on the Mount of Jerusalem, also referred to Mount Zion, verse 7. So whenever you see this, you then look in history, and where did the kingdom of the Messiah come, and be, where was it established? In Jerusalem, on this Mount Zion. In Acts chapter 2, it was established. So that's what it's referring to. I don't think it's talking about any type of, necessarily here, any type of symbolic mountain, but just referring to Jerusalem. This is where it's going to happen. The fifth phrase, it says in verse 2, that many nations shall come. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Whenever you see the phrase many nations, now sometimes that could include Israel, but oftentimes the nations, like in the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer, he called the Philistines the uncircumcised. Well, the uncircumcised was just a keynote phrase for non-Israelites, heathens, pagans, like the Philistines were. Well, nations is often a reference to people that are not Israelites. And in this phrase, and often in prophecy, it takes that meaning. Nations refer to Gentile nations, non-Jews. And, and so foreign nations are going to come, and this implies they're going to become a part of the kingdom, which should, you know, it not, should not have shocked the Jews in Jesus' day when he starts telling them and, and, and healing Gentiles and going to Gentile areas of geography and all that. The Jews got offended to that. They should not have been surprised because multiple prophecies tell us that many nations shall come to the house of the Lord on the mountain of Jerusalem in the latter days. That's what this is referring to. Uh, that's all it's talking about. Look for that phrase to pop up a lot in prophecy. Another phrase is in verse 3. It says, The people of God shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I'm focusing on the phrase, They shall beat their swords into plowshares. This is not necessarily one of the most common phrases in prophecy. But it does pop up a couple of times. It pops up in the book of Isaiah. It pops up here. And I want to say at least one other place, but I may be mistaken. Um, anyways, the idea here is that in the time of you know Micah and surrounding, Israel was a theocracy where God ruled the nation, and they fought holy wars. They literally picked up swords and went and fought their enemies. They were told, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard in the old days... Um, you shall hate your enemy. And Israel was taught to hate the national enemy because they were a blasphemy to their God who ruled the nation. Well, in the days of the Messiah, when the Lord's house is established in Jerusalem and many nations shall come to it, you're going to take your weapons of war, your swords, that's the idea, and you're going to take those and turn them into plowshares. And basically, you're going to take all of your wartime instruments, all your weapons, and turn them into farming and agricultural instruments that you use during times of peace. Now, you scratch your head and you're saying, well, if we're living in the times of the Messiah, and this is true and this has happened, then why do wars keep occurring today? Well, this is focusing on the people of God. And this is not saying that in the times of the Messiah, there will not be war anymore. But it is saying that God's people... God's people will beat their swords into plowshares, and they're going to take their wartime instruments and learn to be a peaceful people. And they're going to be pacifistic. 
They're not going to be a people of conflict. They're not going to retaliate. They're not going to hate their enemy anymore. This should teach us something about the Christian mission and mindset and how we go about treating people and responding to people. And should Christians fight in any context? Well, I'm just planting some seed there. But this is how the kingdom of the Messiah is described, and that's what that phrase uh, denotes whenever we come across it, whenever in, in the books of prophecy. Number seven phrase, everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. This is back to a very common phrase that pops up a lot. It occurs in verse four here, right after he talks about beating your spears into pruning hooks. He says, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Nobody shall make God's people afraid, for the Lord has spoken. And people. And what this is describing is, I, I describe it like this. Whenever you're running from your enemy, <laughs> whenever the enemy's chasing you down, you do not sit down and enjoy an apple on your rear end underneath a fig tree. <laughs> or you don't enjoy a fig under a fig tree. No, you're running. The idea is that in peacetime, everyone sits and enjoys the shade tree. You know, they enjoy the fruits of agriculture and all that. That's what it's describing as a time of peace. And again, there may be wars, but God's people will enjoy peace, spiritual peace, in a way that they have not known it before. In no time bef- like now can people just understand the spiritual peace that comes with being in Christ, in Christ's kingdom, with Him ruling over our lives and in control of all things. This is the beauty of prophecy. It brings to us images of Christ and and what we're living in today, which might seem mundane and it might seem boring and just we lose fact inside of our mission and why we're here and what's going on and all the spiritual surroundings of things we can't see. But the prophets allow us to look into that into that spiritual world for just a hot second. The last phrase I'm going to go over with you real quick, and then we'll be done with this, is he mentions a remnant in verse 7. He says, uh, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. The remnant is a very popular phrase that comes up. Think about if you were to make a pie at Thanksgiving and you ate it and there's only one slither left. You would call that, you could probably call that a remnant of the pie. It's a very small piece that's left of the pie. A remnant is a small part of an original. The idea of a remnant is a small group of people. And God's people, like in the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer, it said there, it does not restrain God from saving by many or by few. And one thing that Brother Ron Quarter taught me whenever I was studying with him in Michigan was there's something called the law of the few. And it's the idea that God is always with the few. You think about in Matthew chapter 7 and the narrow way where few go. And Jesus, or God, saves by the few in the story of Gideon, and the few in the story of, of uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer, and the few in the young boy David and the great giant Goliath, and the few, the nations are going to be saved, and the lame and those that are outcast here describes in Micah chapter 4 and verse 7, I'm going to take the people that are outcasts of society, the ones that people would not expect the most famous king in all the world to come to and to dine with and all that, I'm going to come to those people because the, the big shots don't want to hear me, so I'm going to make something out of the nobodies, and that's 
that's going to be the few. That's why only a few are going to be saved, is because God, he rewrites the script of what people are expecting him to do when he comes back to establish his kingdom. His house on the mountain of the Lord in the latter days to the remnant that will include all nations who beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's going to be a great day. Well, we're living in that day. And so I hope that this has been helpful to you. You're going to see, again, just start reading your Old Testament. You'll see these pop up. Refer back to this podcast episode. Write down what these little phrases mean somewhere in your Bible. It'll help you go along. And I hope that this improves your Bible study and your understanding of the Bible. For today's foot and mouth syndrome, I'll tell you a story that happened pretty recently. At the Chapel Grove Church of Christ, I was preaching on a Sunday morning, and I was given a sermon called The Immoral Woman. And toward the end of that sermon, I bring up James chapter 1, where it describes how desire brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. And James describes sin as if it's a 37-week pregnancy process. And to get the point across of what this baby looks like after it's born, sin and death, <laughs> I make the statement, have you ever seen a beautiful newborn, a cute newborn? And it's a rhetorical question. Like, this is obvious. You know, everybody knows that there are really no cute newborns. I mean, there, I say, I've seen maybe two. Well, recently, shout out to Ashley Modlin. I seen at least the picture. Maybe it was just a, a glamorous picture and she got the right angle, but her newborn's actually a cute baby. So maybe I should say that I've seen maybe three. I want to see this baby in the flesh, though, Ashley. Anyway, um, so I, I made that statement. I did not realize that Hunter and Rebecca Patton were in the audience and their baby was like just a few days old. And so basically I just call their baby ugly. It did not register with me until afterwards and people were bringing my attention. But anyways... I, I've given that sermon a couple times since, and I just tell people, you know, don't let this distract you. And I'm sorry if you have a newborn, but I'm known for speaking facts, and I'm not going to stop speaking facts. There are no cute newborns. I mean, with rare exception. So if you do have a newborn baby, uh, I'm sorry. Maybe you think he or she is beautiful, and she will be one day. But right now, in the first few days out of the womb, no. I've seen babies come out directly out of the womb, and they look like disgusting aliens, uh, detestable creatures. <laughs> it just is what it is. I like kids. I like babies. But it is what it is. Well, that's today's episode. Thanks for sticking around to the end if you are one of those people. I've been looking to what shall we do next, and I would like to start a little mini-series on the podcast going through the most common taken-out-of-context verses, breaking those down, and giving the truth on the verse in context. We might get started on that next episode. We'll still see. Maybe you have a pressing subject or topic you'd like to talk about. Some of you guys have submitted topics, things you'd like to hear discussed. I have listened. I am contemplating what to do with your requests and I have some interviews that I would like to address your topic in the future with somebody else on the air. But we'll see what goes. Until next time, thanks for listening to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast.